Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, where we tackle taboo topics in a safe space through empowerment and education. This episode is sponsored by Araha. Araha stands for the American Relief Agency for the Horn of Africa, and Araha needs your help. The Horn of Africa is experiencing one of the most severe droughts in recent history. More than 16 million people are starving. Four consecutive rainy seasons have failed since late 2020. If something isn't done, the Horn of Africa region could have famine which could claim the lives of a quarter of a million people, like it did in 2011. 50% of those people were children under 5 years old. Visit araha.org to donate today. That is araha.org. We are excited to kick off the season with a preseason episode. We sat down with the director of one of our favorite charities, Araha, the American Relief Agency for the Horn of Africa. We hope you enjoy. Araha is among the top-rated charities on Charity Navigator. Uh, Mohamed Idris is the executive director of Araha with over 20 years of experience in the field. He earned an associate degree in pharmaceutical science in Kuwait, a bachelor's degree in business administration from St. Mary's University, and a master's degree in management from Hamlin University. He is currently pursuing a doctorate program in organizational development and change at the University of St. Thomas. Assalamu alaikum, Mohammed. Alaikum assalam, rahmatullah. How are you, sister? Good, alhamdulillah. So, to get us started, we'd like to start off with how you ended up working in humanitarian work. Thank you. First of all, I want to say uh, thank you for inviting me to your difficult conversation. Yes. <laughs> I hope it's going to be an easy one and <laughs> fun and productive. I'm really glad to have you and thank you for visiting us here at Araha. Though how I started uh, or how I ended up working at Araha, you know, sometimes people think that these things you plan for it, but I think... This is why, especially for the humanitarian work, because it's more related to passion. It's more related to things that you see in your life. I believe Allah planned it for you. Muhammad was born in Eritrea during the independence war in the late 60s and 70s. When he was six years old, he witnessed war atrocities and displacement. When he was eight years old, he and his family had to leave Eritrea on a moment's notice. And we have to walk for days and came to Sudan. And we have family in Sudan as well, but that's what for me was the first time being there. And studied there in a boarding school when I was at the age of nine. And then from there, I got a scholarship when I was 13 years old in Kuwait. So I ended up because of that. Yeah. So when I graduated from high school in Kuwait, the options that I have was very limited. Being a foreigner in that country, you don't have many choices. Mm -hmm. Uh, So despite my high score, that doesn't help. So the only things that were available was to go to this. It's not actually the pharmacy college, but it's more of a Tech, tech tech institute and which has a section for pharmacy where I studied. Mohammed came to the U.S. September 19 of 99 and Araha was founded September of the following year. You know, you should be as an immigrant, you know, you should be busy with establishing your life, mm-hmm. trying to figure out things. But sometimes it's just Allah put you in a certain situation where you choose, you make some choices. And I'm glad to have that because I believe 
people who have been chosen to work for the humanitarian work is, is a blessing from Allah. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be able to be serving the needy is a blessing. Mm-hmm. It's really a blessing. This is not like uh, a degree that you seek so that you can join a business or, uh, you know, this is something it has to come from your heart and you have to really passionate about to go on this. At the time, I was working in HCMC, the Hennepin, Medical, the Hennepin County Medical Center, as a pharmacy technician. And I remember like just looking at the watching my clock every day, watching this when I'm going to end my shift. And now it is amazing that the problem become now is the hours you spend on and doing work. something that you're very passionate <laughs> you're about, right? really passionate yeah. about. And now the problem, it's not about you are watching the clock, it's mm-hmm. that you are watching... You know, am I staying away from my you know, family, family, my mm-hmm. kids, my, uh, my my wife? And uh, for my wife, I think I become like a second wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a blessing, I think, to have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, really glad for that. Mm-hmm. So you were saying that you were working at HCMC, and at that point, the job was just mind-numbing. When was that first conversation that came up for you about Araha, and you're like, okay, this is something that I can consider. So when we started Araha, it was in 2000, and I was, there was, during that time, there was a famine in Ethiopia, I remember. And that's the conversation that led to the establishment of Araha. Mm-hmm. I used to live in Cedar Riverside area where you know, a lot of new immigrants you know, ended up there at the beginning. I was among those people who been living there and then I you know I go to the masjid of Daril Hijra down and then we you know after work we pray there and then we have this friendship between you know different individuals from the East African community you know from the Oromo from the Somalis from you know others and you know we discuss always uh, Africans we discuss politics yeah. <laughs> we discuss what is going on back home and we discuss what is going on here in America, and because the the famine was a major issue that year, we were discussing that and what we should do, what is our obligation, what is our role. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that I met those individuals, very incredible individuals. One of the founders that really was behind this idea was uh, Sheikh Omar Ismail. He's mm-hmm. one of the uh, yeah, leaders of the Oromo community mm-hmm. in the Twin Cities. He spent all his life fighting for his people back home and, and also when even when he came here he always advised you know younger generation you know to do good and to do better and for him always he used to think about you know his community and mm-hmm. um, so when we came to this conversation we said you know this is yes this year maybe it's for Ethiopia but we have to look bigger on the issue mm-hmm. the whole horn of Africa is suffering from there maybe this year is Ethiopia, next year will be Somalia, maybe next year will be Sudan or Eritrea. So this area is very similar to the climate, uh, very similar to many of the challenges. So, And we felt that, you know, as uh, people from that region, we need to do something. We cannot just eat and have fun here and forget about where we came from. Mm-hmm. And so we felt that moral obligation. We said we have to do something. And, and the idea came that, you know, let's establish a nonprofit organization where we can provide humanitarian aid for our people back home. Mm-hmm. That's why we called it the American Relief Agency for the whole of Africa. Mm-hmm. And that is the conversation that we had. And this was a beautiful conversation. And I really encourage a lot of our young 
generation to have this conversation because these are meaningful conversation mm-hmm. that lead to something. And, and alhamdulillah, today we have Arwaha for 20 years have been serving and Mashallah. has been established Mashallah. by the East African community and by the East African community and for the East African people back home. So it is something we should be proud of mm-hmm. and I think we should continue doing. And it came out of a conversation. Mm-hmm. Right. I remember Sheikh Umar, may Allah have mercy on him, I remember briefly this conversation we had and he was really trying to get young people involved with Araha and that was one of his main things. He was like really passionate and every gathering we'd go to, he'd always say, you know, like join Araha, you guys can volunteer, you can do this, you can do this. So Yeah, that's amazing. So in this process of, you know, you guys are talking about back home and being able to contribute on for part of your own community. What was the groundwork in that process? And then kind of, can you tell us a little bit more about that? You know, so out of this conversation that we started, we said, you know, let's meet and we just discussed. So we decided early, you know, we have some several meetings. And during these meetings, we brought the focus on the region. And also we said this is going to be a humanitarian organization, a nonprofit and just start establishing, you know, okay, we need to do it, you know, in a legally, so let's register it. So we invited a lawyer to do our article of incorporation and all this, you know, legal stuff. And I remember <laughs> it's funny because that meeting of founding Araha was in my apartment in Cedar Riverside. And we invited, you know, we have, you know, Sheikh Omar, we have other founders there, and we have the lawyer, I remember her name, Ellen. So we told her about, you know, this is what we are planning to do and things like that. And of course, you know, we have to show also our East African hospitality. So I brought mango and want to serve it. And it was funny because I thought it was sealed. So uh-huh. I was shaking it and then suddenly, like... It burst. <laughs> In, in her clothing and in, you know, it, it was a little bit uh, embarrassing moment, but it become really a moment of connection yeah. of Ellen with Araha. And since then, she remembered that yeah. moment. <laughs> I were able to do our uh, paper uh, on 501c and we started there. And of course, we put a contribution, like a pledge of all the founders. You know, I think we put like $50 every month we have to put. Mm. Because, you know, this is the groundwork now. Yeah. So almost for like a year or two years, we have been, you know, just pay. Because, you know, in establishing a non-profit organization in a legal way, it, it takes some money and takes some budget and time. And we were able to do that. But that passion from the founders just to do something. And we have people from different backgrounds coming together just to do this. It was just uh, amazing thing to see. <laughs> so we continue maybe for like... Almost four or five years, we have been just volunteering, doing that, until we reach a point where the organization grew. And, you know, as the organization grew, there's the, the responsibility to become a lot. And mm-hmm. We have to hire, outside hire our first part-time employee, I remember. Mm. And then after that, they asked me to be a part-time executive director. <laughs> After almost like nine years, I, I think I, I joined, uh, become our executive director. And then after that, it's just, we grew. And uh, today, we have almost like over 30 employees uh, in, the, in the region, uh, the whole of Africa region and here at the headquarters. So 
Uh, we, we, we have offices in Somalia, Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya. Mm-hmm. Really, very proud of the work we have. So during those two years of, you know, like putting your own money into the project, what kept you guys going? Because I feel like sometimes when you start something and you're not seeing the fruits of your labor, you can get kind of disenfranchised. What kept you going personally? That's a good question. And that's one of the things that I always advise new people who come to us here. Sometimes, you know, they want to consult about starting a new project or a new organization. One of the things that I will tell them always is, are you really want to do this? Because this is a long journey. Mm-hmm. This is a long time journey. And if you are not ready for it, and if you don't have a founders or board members who are ready to go with you along, it's going to be difficult and it will have that frustration or maybe it has been you know, taking longer time. Because when you start a new organization, you need a lot of groundwork at the beginning mm-hmm. and you need to spend time and money. But then also people will not trust you to from the beginning. You know, they, only, they need to see the work you have done and how you do that without having any fund coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the challenge aspect of this. So you need to do a little bit small. And we started, started with ourselves and then mm-hmm. with our friends co-workers, maybe we go into some massage and some of the network we have. We started small. But one thing we did is every time we did a project, we reported back to our donors. Transparency from the beginning was, you know, and even showing the people the donation that they made, this is really what resulted to. Mm-hmm. So just showing them tangible things, reporting to them with pictures and video clips and report and actual where we did and the numbers was very helpful. So that started the trust become growing. Going back to your question, what kept us going is just the, the potential that we saw in here in America. We can do a lot for our people back home there. Mm-hmm. If we do it right, mm-hmm. there's a lot of good-hearted people in this country. People really want to help but they want to help organizations that are trustworthy mm-hmm. and transparent and they can show the results. Mm-hmm. Where do you think that aspect of like building trust in, especially when you're doing humanitarian work, first, I want to know what is humanitarian? Can you explain to our audience a little bit? And secondly, how do you build trust constantly doing this work in the community? So nonprofit, it could be in different aspects, and humanitarian is just one of them. And humanitarian is meaning basically mainly providing aid, relief, and also development in terms of education and other aspects of development to vulnerable people and people in need. And the Horn of Africa is considered one of the most vulnerable regions in the world. Unfortunately, whenever famine and starvation mentioned this region come to mind we want to change that image but first you have to really work on the ground and try to help those people and so we wanted to be part of that Mm -hmm. going back to your question about the trust trust is really the capital of any humanitarian nonprofit organization that is the only thing you have. And if you don't have that capital, you really cannot grow. Maybe for a short term you can have, but you cannot succeed in a long term. Mm-hmm. And to earn that trust also, it takes a long time. It takes a long time. People have to really see you doing the work that you promised to work. For example, if someone 
right now sponsor an orphan with us. We have to show that, okay, we send that person a welcome packet where the packet has an information about the orphan. This is your orphan. Mm-hmm. This is the one you sponsored. Every six months, we send to that sponsor also a report and updated pictures and how mm-hmm. this child is doing, you know, the, how they are doing in school, how they are doing in terms of health, and show and be open and transparent. At any time, if anybody want to see our finance, we are ready for that. We actually put it in our website. Mm-hmm. We put our audited financials in the website so that people can see what is coming and what is going. Mm-hmm. That transparency takes time. Charity Navigator put us among the top 8% of U.S. charities in transparency and accountability. And we hope to continue that. This is Amana. We are just agent. We are just the middle person who are trying to take the fund from here and try to help that person in the Horn of Africa with that money and just mm-hmm. being transparent during that process. Do you think the process of the work that you guys are doing in the past 20 years has changed or did it get easier? Did it get difficult? What has it been so far in your experience? It's never been easier. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always changing and it has to change all the time because you want to improve as you grow you know you want to be as best as you can you always find out you learn something new there's a better way to do something and you have to do that otherwise you be idle and you will be doing and repeating the same thing mm-hmm. one of the things we try to really remind ourselves as a team is to review even the project we are doing and to see which one is effective, which one is not. For example, we used to give a lot of you know food baskets to in needy area, and a lot portion of that now start going to school lunch program, mm-hmm. so that we can focus on children who are you know in elementary school because that that is the age of the most vulnerable people when famine happened. Mm-hmm. In 2011, when 260,000 people died in Somalia, half of them were children under the age of five. Mm. So for us to focus on those children, not only we are providing nutrition to them, but also we are saving the future of the region. Mm. We are also encouraging education in Mm -hmm. a different way. Right. We adopted the school lunch program. Now we have many schools in the region that are really supported by us on a daily basis. Araha's vision is a stable, sustainable, and thriving Horn of Africa. What is your role in attaining that vision? I always need to look at that and I say, you know, where we are now. Of course, we are far away from that, but that's the vision. Like, how can I reach there? The hard part is that, you know, you have a limited resources and then at the same time you are seeing this report with, and you see the scale of the problem is just so huge. But at the end of the day, you know, you need to save one family at a time. Mm. Sometimes you, you get discouraged because you see these millions of people are in need. Right now, mm-hmm. there are over 30 million people in the whole of Africa are close to famine. Mm. We are on the brink of famine. Mm-hmm. Seven million livestock mm. die because of the drought. So when you see these numbers, you can say, yeah, you know, what really? What can what, I do? What can I do? Yeah. But if you do that, you'll just stop. You have to see the impact 
on a one time, one family at a time. Yeah, like micro levels. That's like how you can focus level. on. We are proud to really, for the work we have done with our donors and our partners, we dug over 600 water wells across the region in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. We distributed thousands and thousands of, and hundreds of thousands of food baskets to many families you know, saving their lives. We built many schools. Um, we provided a scholarship for over 100 students. The list is a lot. And this last month, we have a girl who's 15 years old who lost one of her eye because of just the family did not have the fund and the money to go to a doctor to save her eye. And she was about to lose the second eye. And she's 15 years old. Mm. When it came to our attention, we were able to help. Unfortunately, there are some families in rural area that they don't have the access, they don't have the fund. They can't afford to mm-hmm. take their children to the capital to see a specialist. But we were able to, you know, with the grace of Allah, to save the eye of this 15 years old girl. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. So these things what really keep us going. That's amazing. So since you've been doing this amazing organization, have you been able to go back and visit any of these places? Every year I visit Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya, Sudan. Tell us your first experience of going there after working with the Araha organization and your first experience of seeing people and the, the land, the country, that experience. Just paint a picture for us. I consider the visiting is part of the recharge. For me, I need also what keep me going and going back to these lands and just to see the suffering firsthand is really, yes, it is devastating and it is, it's hard and painful, but at the same time, it also make you I need to do work. I need to be the voice of those people. There's a lot of people in America here. I need to really show them this is what's going on. So I remember the first time I went there, I went to a refugee camp. Yeah, I think it was in Sudan the first time. And I did the project, like, I don't know, maybe the cost, the whole thing was like $500 or something like that. It was just very small. I was in a personal visit, actually. I was in a vacation, but at that time I was volunteering with Araha. So I visited a refugee camp and I just, I think we distributed like biscuits and some school supplies to school boys and just seeing the smiles and the the happiness it's Mm -hmm. just amazing to see that Mm -hmm. but since then we have been visiting every year to this region that picture you see there Mm -hmm. and i'm I'm sorry your audience would not see (laughs) there but that was in 2011 you know in somalia when there was a famine in somalia and this girl that you see carrying a small child She's almost like 10 years old. I think her mom died and she has to take care of her sibling. She become a mom almost on, you know, Over. overnight because of the family at that time. So seeing these pictures is really what keep me and keep, I think, our team going there. Yeah, that's actually the one of the questions that I wanted to know. What is constantly motivating you guys to do the work you do? here when you're working in Minnesota and trying to provide support or even getting people to donate even more when the fundraising round comes around? How does that work? Yeah, I I really get motivated by the impact we do Mm -hmm. in the region. When I receive a report 
and pictures of a project that has been implemented and see the smiles of the people and see the impact we did. You see the joy and happiness of a father who maybe before that receiving that food basket was really worrying too much on, okay, what I'm going to feed my children? What is the next meal for those people? And then seeing for him or for her, for the mother, this food basket is just a big deal for them. Mm -hmm. So seeing the impact when you see a child that like the one I told you, it's just amazing. But there are even a different success also. We do, one of the projects we do is a self-reliant project. And that's basically we try to make people, provide to the people a vehicle or a, that bring income generation mm-hmm. so that they can work and generate income. Because one of the thing, one of the principles that we try to follow is not to make people dependent on foreign aid. That is not good for our people. That's not a good culture. So sometimes we try to do things like, you know, water tanker, giving them maybe dairy goat, dairy cow, so that they can reproduce, they can stand on their feet. And when you hear some successful stories, like one person in Kenya, I think was, uh, he met our director in the market, in the local market and say, hey, you know, do you know me? And he said, no, I don't know you. Yeah, I'm one of the recipient of your donkey cart. We were distributing donkey cart that time. It's a cart that led with by donkey and you sell water with it. He said that project I made out of that project, you know, I started some businesses, he said. And today he said, I have 500 lamb and goats out of that. And I built a house. Now, it's not the what, what we gave that person brought this, but we gave small things, maybe doesn't even more than a thousand dollars. But that person was a business-minded person mm-hmm. and needed a little to push. Yes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you provide that push, people really do amazing things. Absolutely. So when we hear stories like this, is really keep us going. But it's not only the impact also. I think one of the things that inspired me and I'm sure inspired our team is the donors. Here you have some donors here in the U.S. who never see the region. There is no relationship with the region and the people, different color, different religion, maybe different background, and still come and want to see, want to help. So that kind heart, I remember one time we have a businessman here in the Twin Cities. We had a girl, six years old, her name Shima. We had to take her to Jordan to have a surgery. Because she was born with, uh, she couldn't have a normal way of her to relieve herself. On a six years old, that's mm-hmm. very difficult. She want to go to school and all these things. So anyway, to make the long story short, we find out that there is no way for her to get surgery. And so we took her to Jordan. And I communicated with some donors. And I was amazed that they all came together and like, $15,000 we were raised in yeah, two that's days. amazing. Wow. But that's not the only thing. It's just when we sent her there, one of the donors has an apartment there. And he said, I want that family to stay there. Oh, wow. And he asked his family to take care of that family and the, the daughter and take them from the hospital to the apartment oh. every day. And they filled the refrigerator for them with fruit and things. When you see people who are doing extra miles, mm-hmm. it's just really inspire you. Right, absolutely. Yeah. And, absolutely. And, and another person came, and this is an orphan sponsor. 
And he came to us and said, hey, you know, I'm reading in the report that my orphan is mute, do not speak. And why he's not speaking? Can we know? Is there a way I can help? Mm. And this child was living in a rural area. So we had to, you know, when we asked the family, they said, we don't know. Just since he's a child, he's not speaking. Mm -hmm. The orphan sponsor paid for the family to go to the capital and get diagnosed by ENT specialist, ear, nose, throat. throat, yeah. And they found out that actually the organs are just normal. But it was a psychological shock for the child. So the doctor recommended to have like a special social worker or, or, you know, of course there is no social worker there or there is no like a special education that you can provide, but Mm -hmm. but he needed assistance. Mm -hmm. And this sponsor paid one person to come to that family and try to help that child in their education and to make them, you know, to start talking for two years. So paying for the sponsorship of the orphan plus paying for that teacher who come to the family almost every day right. to help that until this child starts speaking after two years. Wow. That's so when you see something like that, these are the kind of stories that really inspired mm-hmm. uh, inspired me. And the last thing I will say about this point also, what inspired me also, seeing the potential in the Horn of Africa. We have a lot of young people who can do amazing things if we can just a little bit help them. Mm-hmm. I would like to go back to the dependence on foreign aid aspect of it because I think a lot of us being from that region, you know, we might send money back home monthly. Is that a fine line? Like having people that you are providing aid to depend on this aid and also providing something that allows them to be self-sustaining and self-sufficient. How do you guys, I guess, cross that line or something? You know, whenever there is a disaster, you cannot make a lot of advice and, and you cannot tell people, you know, to be sustainable. Either in a disaster, whether when there is like a famine or there is a, like a flood or something like that, people really are in their worst situation. So mm-hmm. at that time, there is no other option other than providing food and water. You cannot even do other things. Mm-hmm. You cannot even do education or other things. Because it's like a hierarchy it's a, of need. Yeah, hierarchy of need. Exactly. Yeah. It's a life-saving. Mm-hmm. So you have to save them first. Mm-hmm. But then once you have, you stabilize the situation a little bit, you have to move them quickly to a more sustainable Mm -hmm. uh, solution. So, for example, right now we have in Somalia, we have three schools that we have been providing school lunch. Mm -hmm. and And also we are providing monthly food ration for the families of these children, rice and cooking oil, you know, things like that. After two years, now we are thinking, actually, we need to, we are discussing with our partners who are funding also this project to move this family. And, mm-hmm. and we are suggesting, you know, maybe we now we let them a little bit, help them un- until this drought go. But quickly, we have to move them to something that they can stand on their feet. Mm-hmm. Maybe we provide them with one time and we maybe buy them something like if they are a farmers, maybe we can provide them some tools mm-hmm. to start, you know, farming. Or maybe if they are livestock, you know, they take care of livestock, maybe we can buy some livestock for mm-hmm. them. But something that they can start with, but then they can re- rely on themselves. They can right. work and they can rely on themselves. Just like establishing a little bit of support and then they can kind of grow in that direction. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, thank you so much for answering that question. I do like to know... How do you manage when there is conflict happening in those regions and still try to support 
because your intention is to support, to feed and take care of people. So they're able to be self-sufficient eventually. How do you balance that out when there's conflict happening for specifically right now what's happening in Ethiopia and then also what's been happening in Somalia and Sudan continuously? So how do you manage that type of conflict when you guys are supporting this type of care? First of all, our communities are very diverse. Mm-hmm. So you want to go by where the, the needs are. Because the needs does not have uh, religion, does not That's have true. aid, does not That's have true. you know ethnic groups. So you want to really focus on where the needs are and, and try to. So, for example, when the conflict happened in Ethiopia, you know, we have been working for a long time in the, the Oromo region, uh, in the Somali region. Recently, right now, when the war happened in the Tigray region, for example, and those people flood to Sudan, we were among the first organization that welcomed them there and provided hot meals every day. We were feeding about 1,200 people, those children and and women there. So you have to really see, but sometimes you don't have the option. Sometimes the area will be closed. Mm. So sometimes there are certain lack of access for different reasons. There are areas in Somalia we love to go. They are under the control of al-Shabaab, for example. This is a humanitarian work. Right. And we should be reaching everywhere. Yeah. But at the same time, we have to protect our people. But that's the reality of our work today. Right. So we have to take this into consideration. And always what we bring is limited to the needs. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, and this is one of the things that always, or almost every project it happened. We come to you know, a village or a refugee camp and we have, let's say, 100, uh, 500 or 1,000 family, mm-hmm. uh, food basket for family or some kind of assistance for 1,000 family. But there is like 5,000 or 6,000 mm-hmm. that and all of them are in need. So how you do that now? Right. You know, so we have to be, you know, choose the most vulnerable, the, the elders, the, the, you know, the widows, and the one have more children, things like that. We put criteria so that we can narrow down uh, the needs because the resources are limited. That's uh, some of the things that I wanted to also understand when there's that, that type of conflict that is happening and your main service to help people, and then there's restriction based on disrupting conflict within that region that makes it difficult for you to serve the people that you wanted to serve. And I've been noticing that a lot happening, specifically both Sudan and the Ethiopia region with Eritrea too, which is very difficult to watch when we're here Mm -hmm. and seeing this and people are in such a terrible situation. And how is it that, how can we provide more help? Because at the end of the day, you're doing just feeding the people yeah. and creating shelters for them. But then there are other, you know, factors. element to factors that comes into play that would hinder those type of uh, contribution that you guys are doing. You know, unfortunately, some organizations sometimes, when you go to this region, one of the infrastructure is so bad that sometimes the needs are far away. It's like you have to drive two days in a very rough road to reach certain areas. I remember one time I was, I'm going to, in the Oromo region, we have like eight water wells that we built in a region and driving to an area called Dalumanna. I'm not mm. sure if you are familiar with Yeah, my family is from you there. You are from there? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. So we have the driving for, at that time, even there was no a good paved road. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's right now. But 
we have been driving and driving and I'm keeping I'm telling the driver are you sure we are still in Ethiopia <laughs> <laughs> we have to climb a big mountains mm. a big mountains to the extent that at the bottom of the mountain we were sweating and at the top of the mountains the water was frozen wow. and we can almost about to touch the cloud It's so big. Uh, you know, this is the mountains, Dalumanna. Mm -hmm. And I remember in that trip when we are in the middle of that climbing uh, of this mountain with the car, suddenly I see a woman having her child on the back, you know, holding it with clothing. And she has a yellow jerrycan looking for water at the top of the... Okay. And she came from... I told them, could you stop and just ask this woman? Because I don't speak Oromo, so they spoke with her. And my question, because I was surprised to see her in that place. This is like, we have been driving with the car around this big mountains mm. for almost like half an hour. Or, and then to see human being in that part, in that area, it was just a surprise for me. And she has a child. The child almost like looked like fainted because it was hot. Mm -hmm. At that so, moment, I re really remember the blessings that I have in my Brooklyn Park house where I opened the fuset and I can get water, mm -hmm. cold water or hot water. While this lady has to, you know, walk with her baby for like a couple hours. Mm -hmm. These are some of the difficult part that reaching... Uh, rural area mm -hmm. and where they need the most because sometimes people may just do it in the capital or around the capital and things like that. The story that you just told about that lady, it makes sense because I, as a mental health worker here, I've worked with clients who have been doing that, who are older, elder client, been doing that back in, in Ethiopia and walking 80 miles a day to do a specific thing. And today, because they're sitting Every aspect of Not their body is coming out right now. Slowly, kind of, they're like revolving and experiencing this trauma. And they don't have languages to explain how they're feeling. But then they can tell you, I have fires in my nerves. They'll tell you that. I have, yeah. My nerve system is burning. And you can do all the x-rays and try to understand what's causing this nerve system. But then the thing that happens that there's a thing called in psychology, somatic disorder, which means that your mental health experiences that you're having, it turns into your body. Mm -hmm. And you experience it from that perspective because of the trauma that you've been experiencing yeah. it. Wow. And so in which it happens when people kind of change that environment mm -hmm. and how that processing happens. So it's really interesting that, that you say that for her, it's nothing to kind of go from this area to that mountain. Mm -hmm. And for us, is there's conveniency of everything. Mm -hmm. And then when she comes out of that environment, the experience of feeling all of that will come out at once, mm -hmm. and which can be very challenging to process. But I want to ask you a very lighter question because we've been unpacking a lot of <laughs> heavy, heavy, heavy topic. <laughs> But I wanted to know, how do you balance your passion and with your family and still able to do the things that you do every single day i don't know maybe the generation my generation to some extent i live the experience of the people I'm, i'm honored to serve these days and i think when you go through that i think you don't feel that whatever challenge that come mm -hmm. <laughs> you just take it is this is like the norm mm -hmm. so you have to do helping and doing something you believe in you don't feel that physical or pain 
and this is one thing, by the way, we don't talk about. This is maybe the first time I'm talking about this, but when I reflect about it, is like mentally, I think that our generation, it needs uh, somebody to come like you and ask this question and just reveal and unfold (laughs) 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 some of these uh, stories and life that we went through because we are just in a cycle of Mm -hmm. one thing to another and not even reflecting on what happened. It's Uh, called survival. Survival mode. (laughs) I'm mindful of that the importance of balance between the work and life and family. I know it in theory. I try my best in practice to do that, mm-hmm. but it's really difficult. Mm-hmm. It's just really difficult because I think what is expected from us is a lot mm-hmm. because we come from a background that need a lot of help. And if you are among those who have been blessed to be in a better place, in a, have a job, you have your kids and your family with you. They are going to school. You have you know, health insurance. And then you know the background where you came from. Mm-hmm. You have this feeling of you need to do more. Mm-hmm. You need yeah. to do more. You will not even enjoy what you have yeah. because of what you know. Yeah. I think some people call it the immigrant tax. There's also called survival guilt. <laughs> yeah. It's a survival guilt. In psychology, it's called survival guilt because you have a better life. Yeah. And you constantly think your people are not having better life. Which can be a good thing sometimes. But it can be unfair as well. Yeah. That's what I'm asking that question is how do you balance that? Where you know I have to take care of my family as well. And then in order for me to give more to others, I have to take care of myself too. Because if you're not there, who's going to do it? Mm-hmm. No, no, you are absolutely right because you are the engine. If the engine stop, then all these nice uh, thinking will not help. Mm-hmm. You know, so taking care of yourself, being mindful about that is really important. But doing it is just a struggle. Yeah, it's really a struggle. Yeah, um, but I mean, I'm gonna ask again. <laughs> what do you like to do for fun? <laughs> <laughs> when you're not in when you're not in the merge- executive director, yes. what do yes. you do? <laughs> I do my doctorate. <laughs> I, know, I know it is not a fun, and uh, I'm actually glad I'm done with it. Last week, I submitted my dissertation. Oh, oh congratulations! Uh, so um, that's some kind of a relief. But um, I think I, if I have the time to have fun, I play ping pong. Okay. I like that. I like to listen to beautiful recitation of Quran. Mm. I have a hobby mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, whenever I hear beautiful recitation, I like to hear that. I have to admit that I don't put a lot of time for fun, but I need to do so. I need to do so. And I started also doing some exercise, which is needed. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Well, one time I was, uh, somebody was telling me, how, how are you doing with the exercise? You know, I'm doing exercise. And I said, yeah, my membership at the club is going. I'm paying that. <laughs> That's as much as we can do, <laughs> paying the membership. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that, too. And I think I also wanted to know, now going back to understanding the process and where you are today, knowing what you know now, what are some things that keeps you up at night? I think what keep me up at night, when you are a small organization, 
you don't have the leverage to have enough staff and to do everything. So, and always now with the you know, staffing shortage of staffing that everybody is complaining about, mm-hmm. uh, is that make the work harder? And then you want to make sure that, you know, you send the report to the donor here mm-hmm. and you follow up on this project, make sure this project is completed. So just being worried. And of course, there's the the founder syndrome also, is, you know, you try to be. Yes. It's your baby. Mm-hmm. It's your baby. Yeah. That's also, <laughs> of course, uh, it's a factor there. So that keep me just how, but I think we have a great team right now that are really taking care. And really most of the work is done by the you know the field staff and the headquarters here um, my job is is more of uh, overseeing and seeing the work also what keeps me up at night is really reading this report that come from the region and telling you that the region is on the brink of famine reading all this and then you know what you can do is not a lot it's really frustrating mm-hmm. yeah uh, it's really frustrating yeah, but other than that, I sleep good. I, I <laughs> sleep, uh, sleep, I good sleep good. every day. Okay. If you could go back and talk to your younger self, I know you touched on a little bit of your history, but what was one advice you would give yourself? I would be at the 18 years old. I will ask elder people who went through this life before me. <laughs> And just really listen to their wisdom. And uh, because one of the things is that you don't want to repeat the mistake of other people. Mm -hmm. I would love to listen to people who went through the same route or similar route and just get their perspective. And that's what I would advise, you know, younger generation. They like only to sit down with their own generation. Mm -hmm. And they don't stand even a difference of like two, three years of age will be, no, this is not my age. Like my son would say, for myself, what I would do differently, maybe focus more on my children, although they are just wonderful and uh, they are doing amazing things. But later in the life, you know that the age of six, you know, or five, that early age is really the critical time of your children and Mm -hmm. the environment was good at that time but I think if I were back if I was 18 years now the advice I will give to myself when you get married and you you have children you really want to focus on those early five six seven eight because that's where the child is shaped mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. i agree mm-hmm. i agree i keep talking about it Shiro knows that <laughs> i always say to the parents please spend a lot of time to your kids before the age of 10 yeah. that's all you have after that they're on their own they have personalities they have friends they have environment that will be shaping them besides what you've been doing But I wanted to ask you, what are some things that in the past 20 years that you have done and you're very proud of yourself for? I'm proud of many things that I have achieved on a personal level. Education is one of it. For example, despite being uh, working full time, I was able to to get my uh, bachelor degree from St. Mary University and master's degree later in management from Hamlin University. And now almost uh, finishing uh, my doctorate from St. Thomas University. So I think I'm proud of that. And I, I want to give the credit really for motivating me for education to my father, who did not have the chance to even finish elementary school. 
But he was always making sure that we, his children, just making sure that we are learning, was pushing mm-hmm. us, and so that we become. So maybe in my family will be the first, maybe generation who, you know, having a doctorate degree mm-hmm. in in my family. But again, it's come back to my father. May Allah, you know, save him and uh, protect Amen. him. Amen. And my other question is, what does success looks like to you? You mean in uh, a theory or in a practical? <laughs> However, <laughs> whatever direction you want to go. <laughs> I think success always is good when it is balanced. Okay. So you have success not only at work, but you are successful on a personal level. You are success in your relationship with your spouse, with your kids. You are also successful in taking your role in your community. You know, mm-hmm. we have different roles. Mm-hmm. I have a role to take care of myself and then maybe my family. Mm-hmm. But then I have a role toward my own community. Mm-hmm. I have a role toward the larger community. Mm-hmm. So just understanding what is your role at any level and trying to do your best on it. I think it's critical because... We see a lot of people become very successful in one aspect of life, mm-hmm. but they do horrible things in other parts. Mm-hmm. There is a book called The Hundred Most Influential mm-hmm. People in History or something like that mm-hmm. by Michael Hart. And one of the things he said about the prophet, uh, peace be upon him, he said what make him unique, that he was successful in the secular and the religious aspect and the social life. Mm. Like he was successful as a father. He was successful as a statesman. Mm-hmm. He was successful as a warrior. He mm-hmm. was successful as a religious person. He was successful in his relationship with his family and friends. And so at different levels, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and we imitate the Prophet. So that's why I see success mm-hmm. need to be at different levels. And that author is like, he was required to put the Prophet as number one. I want to get into how people can get involved with Araha and if there is one project that you want people to get involved in. Uh, we really would like to people to visit our website at um, araha.org, that's A-R-A-H-A.org, just to learn more about you know, the different projects that we do. And, you know, based on the priority of the time, we put certain projects and we look at these projects and we revise, we revise them from time to time. And one of the things we have been, you know, working on and I want to see Raha in the future to do is really to focus on innovative solutions and comprehensive solution, not just scattered here and there. Mm-hmm. I think we are learning as we go that this region uh, need different strategies. Just doing the humanitarian work that everybody is doing is not really the solution. We will just continue doing that, and we will not. There will no any breakthrough. Mm-hmm. So we need to look at how we can help people in a totally different way. You know, the world today is is the global market is is everywhere, and the world is connected. So how we can connect our young generation in Africa to this global market and maybe train them on certain tasks that can be done remotely and helping them work and generate income for themselves. As one time it used to be in maybe India or, mm-hmm. you know, Bangladesh or things like that. Now the lifestyle of these countries right now raised up 
Mm-hmm. And maybe that's an opportunity for us in Africa also to mm-hmm. do, you know, similar to that. Mm-hmm. But continuing the old way of providing aid and handing over aid is really, it's not good. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, we have to do it sometimes because of the drought, because of the, but we have to think about sustainability on the long term. Mm-hmm. On that note, in 10 years from now, where do you see Araha? I want to see Araha become a platform for the diaspora community here in America, especially the young generation to do good through that. You know, we want to be like the vehicle that people use to do something good there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to be, I want to see Araha to be the destiny for information about the region, about the humanitarian work. I want to see Araha moving from the traditional projects to more innovative solutions. Like the one I talked about, you know, maybe maybe connecting people to the global market, you know, somehow. There is no one way to do, you know, aid or to help people, Mm -hmm. different ways. Mm -hmm. But we have to be creative and we have to be innovative. Mm -hmm. We have, one of the problems we have is this recurring uh, drought. Mm -hmm. How we can look at this issue from different perspectives. It looks like the drought is going to stay there for a long time. That's all the prediction it says. Mm-hmm. And actually it's going to be worse and worse. So the question come right now is how we can make our people resilient so that they can weather this and still alive and surviving and thriving. Mm-hmm. Drought happened in India, drought happened in California, drought happened in everywhere, but we are the only region we got devastated with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the question is how we can build the infrastructure that at least when the drought happened, you know, we don't have this mortality. We have thousands of people die. Mm-hmm. I think I was reading somewhere that they're innova- like innovating artificial rain in parts of the region. I don't remember exactly which part. I don't know if it's Ethiopia or Somalia. Mm-hmm. But like creating artificial rain so that, you know, it can help the crops and stuff like that. Have you guys thought of partnering with governments or other agencies to look into those innovative ideas? Yeah, we, we, we look from time to time. We, one of the things we did, for example, in Ethiopia, we did one project called Sand Dam. We come these small seasonal rivers. The problem is just to give a background. Although we have a drought, but that doesn't mean there is no rain. Mm. There will be rain from time to time. Okay. But the problem is the rain come... Outside of season. Outside of season or even sometimes within the season. And then... And maybe it doesn't come that much, but the little one that come, nobody capture it. So it will go to the ocean, destroy the crops, and then it just go to the ocean. Mm. There is no infrastructure that capture that. And then after one month, the region is dry. Mm. You know what I mean? So how we can capture this water that is coming, even if it's little, but it will be enough. But how we capture it, we need to build dam. So one of the things we did is in Ethiopia, we did build a sand dam. So we come to this river and built a concrete in the middle, but in a way that it doesn't stop the water, but it slows the flow of the water. So there are many ideas. So that this, uh, I think the idea is we need to not to be just circulating the same mm. old ideas. And, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, so we are trying to really be innovative on that. Mm-hmm. Especially, I think, now that like 
a lot of people, even in the States, like they're moving away from traditional education and stuff like that. And a lot of people are going into tech and these jobs. I think what COVID did is it kind of gave people a different perspective on a lot of different things. And so a lot of people are realizing that they can do remote jobs. They don't have to do the nine to five and stuff like that. So yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that I was mentioning. This is one of the uh, actually idea right now we are assessing and is how to connect young people. We have 60% of Africa is young people. Wow. It's it's the youngest continent. (laughs) And unfortunately, those young people are not finding opportunities. And that's why they are sacrificing their life by going to the Mediterranean and dying there, Mm -hmm. trying to cross to Europe. Mm -hmm. So if we can find solution for those young people, they are ready to go. They are very smart. They are, you know, they just need the opportunity. So how we can take advantage of the availability of internet and technology to connect those people to the global market by maybe training them in a specific jobs that does not need to be on site, can be done remotely. Mm-hmm. And then if a company here pay for that job, $2,000 here, you, if you offer there for $300, $400, it's a win-win situation. Absolutely. You know, so things like that, I think we need to do a lot. And I think there are opportunities. But sometimes what happened with, with humanitarian work, you are just so busy on the day-to-day work and you forget to pause and to say, is there a better way to do this? Yeah, mm-hmm. to reevaluate to certain re-evaluate. things. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. And I think that gets at the heart of the problem because even family members that are back home and they almost don't even want to go through the educational route because one, even if they scored the top, there's no jobs. So then, you know, they either want to go overseas or just do something else. I tell donors to really, when they are donating, to be smart when they are giving, to... Think about the lasting impact projects, especially education, uh, self-reliance projects, mm-hmm. uh, things that make people, empower people and make them stand on their feet. That is much better than, yes, we need to give you know food and things like that, but we have also to balance it. Now, one of the problems we have as, an, as a humanitarian organization, when we ask people, hey, people are dying and we need to bring them food, people are ready to help. Mm-hmm. But when you said, you know, we want to build a school here. You don't see that the same enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. But we need to be smart because in the long term, we, only, we need to solve this problem. Yeah. So this is one of the things that I really encourage donors to think about, always donating to education, self-reliance. Nelson Mandela once said, this, education is the most powerful weapon to change the people. Absolutely. If we want to change our people there, we need to focus on education and self-reliance. Okay. How would you say that people can find Ara, like as far as social media concern, where can they find you guys? I think we have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter accounts. So, so all this, uh, we are there. Okay. If you go to the website, actually, it can take you mm-hmm. to these uh, accounts. Okay. Uh, Araha.org. That's A-R-A-H-A.org. Okay. Yeah. Well. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you sitting down and talking with us. I think I've learned a lot. There are certain things that I didn't consider when it comes to humanitarian work. And, you know, we do have families overseas. And so sometimes you don't connect it together and it's so disconnected. So I really appreciate having this conversation with you.
Yeah, we really appreciate you sharing your stories and your progress and you continue growing. And hopefully you do more things for fun. So <laughs> add that to your list. <laughs> I will take that advice and really thank you for giving me this opportunity to tell our stories and to uh, explain to people how the humanitarian work and some of the challenges. So I'm glad to have that. Mm-hmm.